Welcome back, my friends. Here, getting it right with Rick Wagner here on Kansas Z KGLN, all across Western Colorado, Eastern Utah, and uh, you know the internet, and still, still traveling through space. Actually, this is one of the interesting things about radio is, uh, and just we're sending it out, and soon we'll be well, we're probably at past Alpha Centauri now. Some of my early shows are probably. Mm-hmm. 18, 19 late years out there. So if there's an, anybody listening out there, I say, hey, okay, just don't come here. <laughs> we have enough problems. I don't need anybody else interjecting them, sort of some interstellar issues, okay? So just if you want to listen, that's good. So, folks, uh, we live in an interesting world here. Yeah, it's uh, here's how interesting it is. The Taliban, there's video of this, and... Some of you may have seen it. And I posted the link on my webpage at uh, therickwagnershow.com of uh, Taliban are patrolling the streets of Kabul on rollerblades. <laughs> now, if that's a, a sentence that you thought you would hear, you are much more precognitive than I am. That's not a sentence I thought I would be saying to you that terrorists or Islamic oppressors, whatever you want to call them, are patrolling the streets of Kabul on rollerblades. At the same time, they are also carrying AK-47s, which surprised me a little bit since we left so much equipment over there. I thought they might have M4, stuff like that. They probably are. Although when I looked at the video, their uniforms, you you decide uh, kind of the level of equipment that they have there. But they seem very happy. Uh, part of the video, uh, they hitch right on vehicles as uh, they go down the street, get their speed up a little bit. Uh, quite interesting. What occurs to me, though, and this may just be some hangover from a previ- my previous life, but one of the things that is a difficult issue with, say, bike patrols in law enforcement is the upside is obviously their maneuverability, their ability to get into areas that a car cannot, a way to interact with people without drawing too much attention, and still get around relatively quickly. My guess, and I haven't checked this of late, but there may be a lot of departments that have switched to e-bikes to help uh, speed things up a little bit or let the uh, patrol range of the bike unit go a little further. But one of the issues with a bike patrol is... Once you get there and are working with the situation, if you make an arrest, what do you do with them? Now, some of these people that you arrest are going to be too big to ride back to the jail on the handlebars. So you gotta, you have to have the ability to call, transport, and so forth, which means that you're just kind of there in the middle of things, hopefully with yourself and another bike officer. But you're kind of waiting around for transportation and so forth. It seems to me that being on rollerblades, patrolling, is even more difficult. You don't really have a lot of stability on rollerblades. I mean, I know some people that are really good on them, and they can stand still and this and that, but I don't think that you can really do much in terms of, uh, you know, say someone is out and they have a magazine from America. And it's visible to one of the patrol people. Obviously, action has to be taken. 
Now, it could be a simple beating. Uh, it could be transportation back to some other location to find out where the magazine was uh, sourced from, how many people have seen it. Uh, you know, the stuff that you're, you know, you're dealing with really outrageous conduct there. Uh, so what do you do? I mean, I guess you just rollerblade up to them and maybe, uh, I don't know, this is the Taliban after all. I guess if it reaches a certain point, you just roll up to them and uh, use the butt end of the AK-47 or who knows what. But it's an interesting view to see essentially people whose belief system is eh, kind of around the 12th, 13th, well, really the 13th century maybe, uh, out on rollerblades patrolling around. It's just... Uh, it's somehow a sign of societal collapse. <laughs> like I can't put my finger on exactly why it feels like that, but it's 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 so absurd that you think things in the world are just they're topsy turvy and just kind of off the charts. You just not don't know what you're going to see, which I don't think is good for the progress of history. Uh, to move into more enlightened and useful times, right? Uh, so I'm I'm very kind of fascinated with stories like this. Uh, they they tell their own story a little bit, but it's it's hard to fit them in. You know, realize there's a story there. Something this is telling you something. It just takes a while trying to figure out what it is. Of course, it's amusing in a sense uh, because it's surprising. The other thing I want to talk about was. Uh, are you folks uh, still forking over a lot of money for some of these universities for your kids? Just wondering. And if so, have you checked kind of what's going on in the campuses where the kids are at? I mean, I'm not sure I want to recommend it because you may not like what you see there, but many campuses, many of the larger campuses – even CU Boulder, where I'm at in Colorado, I'm not at CU Boulder now, but I mean, uh, has had, you know, pro-Hamas type demonstrations, anti-Israel, pro-Hamas, whatever you want to call them. And I'm stunned by the level of, well, it's idiocracy, really. Uh, it's okay if you want to be on the other side of something. You're wrong. You are uh, on the side of, of people who uh, are... Well, they're terrorists, they're uh, barbaric, and given the opportunity, they wouldn't like most of the people that are protesting in their behalf. But that's okay. But at least just have some sense of what you're talking about. Some historical background, some idea about what's going on. I, I can't tell you how many of these interviews I've seen of people protesting that either are just rabidly hysterical to the point where you really can't get any sense out of them. They're filled with uh, bile. Uh, and you may know that uh, physicians in centuries past had believed that people's, shall we say, uh, their bodily composition affected disease and so forth. And there was bile and, of course, humors, and there was the time when... Uh, they thought that many of the problems you might have was because you had too much blood and you needed to be uh, exercised of that, right? So, But these people do seem to be filled with, uh, well, with uh, some of them with just plain old hate. We throw that word around a lot, don't we? 
well, we don't, but the left does. Everything that they don't like, any statement that they don't agree with, any person that has a different point of view than that was acceptable in the narrow hallways of progressive liberalism is hateful. This is why when you hear people like Nikki Haley talk about hate speech and this and that, she sounds a little like people on the far left. And this thing that she's been off on lately about the Internet and making people not uh, making people reveal who they are, no, no anonymous uh, postings and stuff. I get that. But when you listen to her, it sounds a little too much like what people on the left want to do, which is kind of get on top of your opinions. And if they don't really like them, maybe you shouldn't be broadcasting them. That's not good. And because the next step of that is eh, maybe you shouldn't be talking about them. And then yeah, maybe you shouldn't even be thinking about them that way. It's a pretty slippery slope. And that's why I get a little concerned when I hear people talking about censoring speech. It's, it's a difficult topic. We all know that. It's a very fine line to, ro- to walk on the edge of speech we disagree with and finding it to be speech that is beyond the pale, you know, that causes a uh, physical threat to people. It's not easy. We'll be back. All right, we're back, folks. Uh, For those of you on the podcast, you didn't get to hear the bumper, but uh, we listened to uh, the famous Johnny Western singing the theme from Have Gun, Will Travel, which, of course, uh, would be probably a criminal act at this point. Uh, matter of fact, I'm sure it would be if uh, you have a firearm and you travel to a lot of places. Uh, it's the pokey for you, my friends, and for a long time, uh, probably longer than someone who, I don't know, hijacks a car, carjacks, I guess. Hijacking a car is just, it's carjacking now. I thought, used to think that hijacking a car kind of was a better term, but I don't know. Anyway, yeah, but you'd probably be in more trouble than that. I mean, we read those stories all the time. But Paladin here. Now, he had a gun, and he traveled with it. So those were the good old days. Anyway, in the last uh, segment, we talked a little bit about kind of the Nikki Haley thing with uh, speech and this and that. She's an interesting character, isn't she? Uh, I'm trying to get her on the show. Somebody offered to try and get her on there a while back, and I think I might have missed my window, but let's try again because she's, you know, speaking pretty much everywhere. But what she's sort of standing for things that are very interesting as a conservative because she's not really a conservative. We know that. She's a neoconservative. You know, the neocon badge gets thrown around pretty good, but it's sort of the uh, George W. Bush kind of conservatism where you're just a little lost about what you think it really means. Yeah, you got a couple of ideas about it, but... And it also has a tendency to be very interventionist. This is what mainly gets pointed out now, especially with all these wars going on around the world. The idea that we should just get involved with everything and straighten this stuff out, you know, just go there and straighten those kids out. That's not probably the best use of American treasure and people. But on the other hand, there are times when we have to act and we have to be prepared to act and we have to be situated with leadership 
and national resolve so that our enemies, and yes, we have enemies, we don't have partners all the time. The Chinese are not our partner. Sorry, Joe, they're just not. They would prefer to see a world where either we don't exist or we are a puppet government. That would be their kind of shining moment. But our enemies realize that we are strong, we are resolute, and we will take action if necessary. Now, there's always a debate about what is in the national interest. And sometimes things that are in the national interest are very far away from us. And it's hard to put your finger on it right away. And sometimes they're the result of interlocking situations. For instance, in Europe, we've decided that we're part of NATO, the North, um, North American Treaty Alliance, North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, excuse me, uh, which seems to have spread way past the Atlantic. Uh, I would like to point out to Turkey that they're in the Mediterranean, not the Atlantic, but they're part of NATO. At any rate, we've decided that because of the threat from the Soviet Union and now Russia, that we're part of the alliance. And uh, the reason it's important is because we believe that keeping Europe out from under the control of the Soviets and now the Russians is important to our own national economy and ultimately uh, our defense. It's hard to imagine that a imperial type government like Russia is now and used to be it's pretty much been way all the time. If it would manage to control all of Europe, and I don't think that would happen. I mean, not in the foreseeable future, but if it did, it would be hard to imagine that they wouldn't turn their attention uh, to us, and we would be significantly weakened. First, we would not have many allies there, not that we're very good at keeping allies anyway. And some of those folks over there, it's hard to say why we call them allies. And I'm talking to you, France. But we still think that's in our national interest. And so we're ready to land over in eastern Germany and apparently now uh, in some of the old uh, Baltic countries uh, to defend Europe because we think ultimately it's in our national defense. Now, we can argue about that. I think for the most part, a lot there is a lot of truth in that. But that's what we've decided. Now, we can get ourselves in a lot of trouble if we're not careful about who we make alliances with. I would uh, refer you back to World War One that we talked about last week and the enormous casualty figures and things of that nature. And uh, what happens when you fall into the sort of alliance after alliance, and before you know it, everybody's against everybody. Now, that was a little more special, if you want to call it that, because it was also the end of uh, certain imperial areas, and not we're not talking about imperialism like Soviet Union slash Russia. We're talking about, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, and, uh, you know, kings in what was became Yugoslavia and now is, you know, Croatia and whatnot. That's not Croatia, actually. But I have to look at the map again. The point being that there was a, a turning, like we've talked about on this show, where that there's a generational change from the type of government that was going on. And that created an even more uh, sort of cascading effect across Europe. And so before he knew it, everybody was kind of involved. And unfortunately, it broke down into a certain kind of warfare that was very static 
and dangerous. An interesting combination. We talk all the time about, well, we don't, but military figures like to talk about kinetic action. You know, the large-scale kinetic action, meaning movement and the insertion of force, you know, that kind of thing. It's a, I'm not crazy about the term, but I understand what, I understand what they're saying. They just like to, it's, it's getting to be in the military a, a little bit from the generals and stuff, a little too jargony. I mean, obviously the military's got a lot of jargon in it, and a lot of the jargon that we use in our everyday lives now comes from the military, especially things that came out of World War II in Korea. Uh, little sayings and things, because so many people were exposed to it, and then they carried on in their civilian lives. But uh, they, some of these things are dressed up to the point where I worry that they actually have forgotten what their job is uh, as military leaders, you know, kill people and break things, make the enemy not want to fight anymore, destroy their will to fight, destroy their capability to fight, and then worry about how you, you know, craft the terms of the peace after you've done that. I don't think that some of the generals we see and admirals are really got that going in their head very well. At any rate, we decide things that are in our national interest based on things that we have in our country and how those would be affected by what happens farther away. Taiwan. We would see a very noticeable effect in the United States if Taiwan was overrun by China. Most of you know out there, because you're smart people and you actually follow the news, that Taiwan uh, produces about 95% of certain types of semiconductors. And they are a huge producer of that across the world. And without that, we would see extreme shortages for a lot of the things we take for granted as working. For instance, you know, the heated seats in your car, the uh, button you press to open the hatch on it, the, uh, I'm, I'm sort of in the automotive mode, but all of these things that you don't think of as being particularly techy, particularly wonky, they're all over the place. There's pretty much nothing you use now without a microchip in it, and that includes the fueling that you do with your vehicle. Uh, everything has some type of computer or sensor in it, and a tremendous amount of those are made in Taiwan. If we did not have Taiwan available, we couldn't just pick up the slack. We don't have the manufacturing capability right now. And we would see a lot of change in what was happening with products that we have in the United States. And some of them are stuff that we actually need. I mean, I'm liking very much the ability to open the trunk on a vehicle with a button, but I could live without it. Where there is a lot of equipment out there that we have become very dependent on, that if we couldn't replace it or build it here, we'd see some significant changes. So Taiwan, by that measure, is an important aspect of the United States economy. Our administration doesn't seem to take it that way. We had Chairman Xi in here again, who was uh, roundly welcomed uh, with more Chinese flags than American flags in America. Uh, with, uh, I mean, let's face it, <laughs> President Biden just doddering around uh, and squinting and staring at teleprompters and then finally giving up on that and reading a, 
a uh, index card someone gave him uh, about what's going on is not something that's going to impress someone like G or even Putin or practically anybody who's you know got their uh, wits about them and so how how resolute do we appear in protecting our national interests like Taiwan Taiwan and other places not very much it's something to think about about how we project ourselves i think i think we know what we look like from the outside that's right folks we're back looking for a hero even if it is Mighty Mouse, whatever, anything, anybody that can help us out, we're looking for them. Those of you on the podcast, I played the theme from the old Mighty Mouse cartoon that many of you will not even know about, much less uh, remember. But anyway, it sums it up. Mighty Mouse is, uh, well, he's sort of the mouse Superman, and even he would be a help these days. So, you know, last segment we were talking a little bit about how this we project ourselves in the world out there and how people take that and how they respond to it. People respond to your stance in things, right? And they respond to deterrence, and they respond to weakness. The response to deterrence is usually just that. keeps people from doing things. The response to weakness is that it encourages them to do things. I'm not exactly sure why this is a concept that some people on the left don't seem to understand, seems pretty obvious to all of us. One of the things you have to ask yourself when you look at what's going on in the world right now, and specifically, let's look at what's happening in Israel, and of course Hamas in Gaza, is sort of the second layer. There's what's going on, and then there's why it's going on, and then there's a third question I think we should always ask ourselves in this, is how does it happen? How did this happen? And not just reiterate the whys, but the mechanics of how. Think about this for a minute with Hamas and Gaza. And many people probably, I know you know this, but it's such an interesting thing that doesn't seem to be talked about. Hamas has been firing tens of thousands of rockets, all sorts of military equipment that they have, all of these tunnels they've built, and all of these fighters, how are they paying for that? Now, we're just going to jump up and say Iran, and that probably is a good guess. But think about that for a minute, how much this costs. And how Hamas isn't a company. They're not making anything. They're not selling anything. Well, they seem to be selling their propaganda to people. But beyond that, they don't make any money. Nothing's coming in. I mean, people in the 13th century living there made made more money and are more productive than these characters. So they're totally supported, 100% supported by outside money. They're not getting it from in Gaza. Gaza doesn't really have any extra money or actually enough money. So it's all coming from the outside. It seems so obvious when you ask, well, how? How do they do and Where do they buy this stuff? Well, once again, the answers become Iran, other arms dealers throughout the Mideast. I mean, this is this is not a hard question to answer either. And, of course, we know because we can detect the kinds of missiles they're using, examine the detritus from them, and we got a pretty good idea who made them. We don't hear much about that either. So the real core of this is, in fact, their funding. Without this kind of money, they couldn't be doing any of this. 
I mean, they would be doing some of it, of course. Even a lone terrorist can do all sorts of reprehensible things. But we don't seem interested in going after the money supply. Once again, the Biden administration this week released even more money to Iran. What do you think they're going to use it for? Oh, yes, right. We have all these safeguards in place. Uh, like you guys have heard a thousand times, money's fungible. If you know you have money coming in to pay all your bills, and they tell you, now don't take that money and spend it on gratuitous things, say, okay, fine. I'm going to take the money I was going to spend on bills and spend it on gratuitous things. How simple is that? It's just that simple. <laughs> and you guys all know this because you're normal people. Apparently, it is not something that penetrates into the bureaucracy in Washington, or if it does, it's totally ignored. So sometimes when you're looking at these things, we could get Kamala Harris on this. Remember Kamala was going to, she was going to look at the root cause of the migrant problem, right? The uh, immigration problem across our borders. Remember when migrant also, by the way, used to mean migrant workers. It meant people who were migratory in the sense that they moved from job to job and originally from crop to crop in many places, California, here in Colorado where I'm at, other places where people would come at certain times of the year when there was crop to be harvested, and they would then migrate to the next place depending on the season. That's kind of where we get the migrant thing. Now it's become sort of this uh, overarching thing about anybody that wanders into the country. That's not the same. Those are immigrants. They are not migratory workers, or migrant workers, rather. Not in the sense we used to think of them, anyway. You know, when you when you try and decide what is the end game here, we all know one of them is: well, these people all become Democrat voters, and of course, you're branded all sorts of loons and nasty names if you even talk about this replacement theory. Well, it's not a theory, is it? I mean, it's what's happening. A lot more of these people come in who are going to be dependent on the government. They're going to be low-skilled jobs. Some some of them, many of them, are very hard-working people, but some of the skills they have, there's only limited demand for them. At the same time that these folks are coming in, we're talking about how the labor market is changing because of technology. And a lot of the jobs that might go to people who don't have a lot of skills beyond sort of a manual approach to things... Uh, are not going to be as necessary. And we're saying that kind of manual labor, we're not talking about you guys out there that work with your hands, make things, fix things, stuff like that. We're talking a lot about the service industry and so forth, where people work very hard, but we're also going through a time when the companies that operate these are trying desperately to get rid of the need for employees. And so what happens then? I constantly anymore, well, not every second, but often think of a lot of the science fiction books I read, and many of you may have read them too, with this sort of future that would pop up that a large segment of the population would be unemployed. There just wouldn't be jobs for various reasons. A lot of it would be done by automation and things like that. And these folks a much larger portion of the population in, in these books than exists now, simply were wards of the state. And they lived in some sort of subsidized housing with, you know, some sort of uh, meal card and this kind of thing. 
I always think of that as the Caves of Steel kind of thing. It was an Isaac Asimov book that uh, had that term in it, you know, where everybody's just sort of in a, like a rabbit warren, right? We just poke people in there. And if you look at what planners in many of these jurisdictions across the United States want to see, it's housing people like that. They don't want to have single-family residences, large houses. They think everyone should pretty much live in an apartment of some sort because it's, quote, more efficient. I'm not even sure that's true, but it's certainly more easily controlled. And you get people on board with this because there's there's the people who want to be able to control folks, and it's a lot easier to control everybody when they're in a building than when they're at home in a single-family residence. And then you get people that are just delusional with climate change. Oh, well, the only way we can survive is if people all live in some sort of box that we designed to be hot in the summer and cold in the winter and you know run on uh, sunshine and uh, being pulled along by you know uh, fairies perhaps, or some, you know, some sort of pixie dust makes things operate. So you get those two groups together, and they become a fairly large section of what operates in government these days. Because the sole end of of government is at some point to govern. And to govern requires power. And to get power, you have to get control. Control is something that allows you to manifest your ability to direct people through the means of the governmental entities and the services it provides. So the more people become dependent or required to be dependent on government resources, the more control you get. And the more control you get, that lets you direct the populations to do certain things, which increases the power, right? So you see how that all goes. This is this is not something, of course, that you know, just came up with, with the election of Joe Biden or Barack Obama or even Bill Clinton. This has been around a long time. The idea of the administrative state sort of is similar to that. And we see a great example of just sort of a naked administrative state being pushed during the Wilson administration. And luckily, it didn't take hold for all that long, although it certainly grew under FDR. But because of World War II and the kind of manufacturing and economy we were forced to engage in, it it was an interesting thing because, on the one hand, the government was controlling a lot more because they were in, in, heck, you had ration cards for certain things. You couldn't get tires for your car. You had a certain amount of certain things. You can all the sorts of things that they would love to do now. The difficulty for them was when the war was over, and all the military guys came back, that's not what they were fighting for. They were fighting in their minds for freedom and the ability to live well. So they weren't going to put up with any of this stuff continuing. And it didn't. And we ended up getting Truman, who was, eh, and then Eisenhower, who I think understood a lot of that, and Things started growing. Things started moving forward because the individuals from what we call the greatest generation saw what happens under terrible, restrictive, tyrannical, and dictatorial governments, the money part of it. And they wanted things to be better every day than they were before. And you couldn't do that under you know so much government control. 
just wouldn't put up with it. Now, as time goes by, we talk about our turnings and generational stuff. People forget all of that. They look back and they don't understand. Now they look back and they understand the whole purpose of any of that. It's beyond them why people thought all this was important and set these institutions up and all these protections up. They haven't seen the things those people did. They haven't done the things those people did. I mean, a good example of that is look at vaccinations. People can feel they want about vaccinations, and I'm not talking about COVID because it's that's a completely separate topic of its own. But a lot of people now, because of ideas that they have, don't want to get their kids vaccinated or whatever the case may be. And that's fine. But some of them, I would say many of them, are of a group that because of their age have no connection to a time when these diseases were prevalent. They don't have an idea of how debilitating they were. They don't know how bad polio was. That is maybe a picture in a book of someone in an iron loan. That's as far as they get. They can't imagine what diphtheria or any of the other things that they have. No clue. Nobody they know or anybody that they knew they knew, that that they know that knew somebody else has ever been around to that. So they can't grasp it. And that's when it gets dangerous. And as we move through these things, the idea is that we need to have more control over what people do. We should have the ability to regulate everything because people in a group are smarter than individuals. That's kind of the philosophy. And of course, what is the, uh, what is the epitome of a group? Well, the government. Government's always better in these people's minds because they don't understand once again why we were so suspicious of big government. They haven't lived through any experiences or saw things in the world that were the results of these kinds of things. It's all hazy history to them. And I say that because most of them, it's not even hazy. They have no idea what happened 70 or 80 years ago or 30 years ago. Look at what's happening now with the TikTok trend about these people all reading Osama bin Laden's letter to America. Wow, that really opened my eyes, some of them say. Oh, yes. I noticed most of them either weren't born or are probably one year old when we were attacked. So no context on it. That's something that's history to them, and they don't even know it, understand it, or to some extent even care about it. But because they want to feel like they're rebels, they read Obama, Osama bin Laden and... Well, this guy, you know, he's a freedom fighter. Right. Because you don't know any better. And we've, we've gotten to a point in the country where not knowing any better is really getting crazy and dangerous. I posted something from, oh, Jason Rantz, who you see on Fox News, about what's going on in Seattle. And, of course, we know what's uh, happening in Seattle in, the, in Seattle in the broad strokes. But he was talking about how they, they just raised more taxes on themselves to fund homeless, affordable housing. Now, they've tripled the tax rate on assessed property values from $0.14 cents to $0.45 cents per $1,000 of assessed property value. Now, on the average in, in Seattle, I read where that's going to 
put about $400 more on everybody's tax bill just for this one project. And when you examine it, according to what we see here, is that it's probably going to cost that much just to administer the program. And there probably won't be any money left over for doing anything with it. That also is not a surprise because government needs to be fed. And we think war burns gold. Bureaucracy burns gold, and you don't even see anything happening. It just disappears. So I'd, I'd encourage you to read that. It's a little bit about how Seattle has gotten to the point, too, where they have all these tenant bills to where landlords are just they finding it impossible to get people out of residences if they don't pay rent or anything like that. We kind of suspected that's happening. Uh, and where I'm at in Colorado, I'm certain there will, in the next legislative session, there'll be yet another push for all these kind of California, uh, Washington state regulations for a bunch of different stuff. The first will, of course, be homeless stuff. There'll be that. And then things to do with tenant rights. They'll pop up again. And sooner or later, if we're not watching, they will happen. Speaking of things that happen when we're not watching, you know, we keep talking about the uh, crackdown on your home appliances, right? Your gas ranges and things like that. Which administration keeps saying they're not doing anything about? Yeah, they are. This week, Biden invoked what is a wartime power, right, from the from the Cold War, to increase the amount of funding for projects for heat pumps because people weren't buying them, and because they're not buying them, they're not being made. And he's so mad about that. Oh my gosh. This is, of course, according to once again, save money with efficient heating and cooling technology. No one thinks that except them. And he's using the Defense Production Act, which you heard a little bit about during COVID, which is 1950, which is supposed to be able to allow the executive to direct industries or give money to industries to make crucial things for essentially wartime, but not for these guys. So if you want to look that up, you could. There is a real war on your appliances. There's all sorts of standards that have been unveiled by the Department of Energy over the last few months uh, for all sorts of appliances, stoves, clothes, washers, refrigerators, air conditioners. And air conditioners I specifically looked up because I was talking to some HVAC guys, and they were telling me about some of these regulations that were popping up about air conditioning. What they're doing is... Trying to get rid of the HVCs, hydrofluorocarbons, that you use to make a coolant out of. By doing that, they're going to introduce a replacement that is wildly more expensive and probably less efficient, since people are telling me. It costs you a lot more to get your air conditioning and a lot more to get your refrigerant, and that would include in your refrigerator and freezer, topped off if you need to get more. It's going to be a lot more expensive. And for those of you that have it done now, it's a lot more expensive than it used to be right now. And here's one. Of the, here, here's something that someone said, uh, and Fox News reported this, that the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the guy that's in the senior fellow there, said that doing this was likely to raise the costs, probably substantially, in the air conditioning system. And here, just think about this. One of the issues is that the new refrigerants, the new eco-friendly refrigerants, are classified as flammable. 
So there are all kinds of precautions that have to be taken when you have an air conditioning system with flammable refrigerants. Okay. Who thinks that's a good idea? To inter- introduce yet another very flam- a flammable product into your air conditioning. But that's what's going to happen. And you know what? You're going to pay a lot more for it. If that makes you feel any better, which I bet it doesn't. We have got to constantly be monitoring what's going on. The bureaucracy is so large now that they're able to do things like this without anybody even finding out about it. And a lot of this seems like laws as opposed to regulations. We keep running into this where these agencies are doing things that have a vast transformative effect on entire sectors of the economy with absolutely no congressional oversight which theoretically should allow the people to have some say into it. These lines between regulations in the administrative bodies and executive orders from the executive, the president, and not just Biden, but everybody, are becoming, every time you hear about them, to me, and I think many people, are stepping stepping jumping across the separation of powers. They're imposing things that should be laws, not executive orders. Some of the regulations have the same kind of thing. Who thought that you could change everybody's household appliances just because Elizabeth Granholm and her people in the Department of Energy, I mean, which just makes your head spin to think about that, uh, just have a regulation to do it. These are monumental changes uh, in the country that ought to be subject to oversight and should be passed through the people's representatives. Even if they're not doing a good job, you got a shot at it that way. This is just a few people, you know, in a room uh, circulating a couple of ideas around and uh, typing them out and then putting them through the process. Folks, we got to start paying attention to all of this stuff. Check out the webpage at Rick Wagner's, rickwagnershow.com. Got a lot of this stuff. Talk to you next week.